0: esteemed audience and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host Rob Kent and as you know I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees which is available as an audiobook as a paperback, but the ebook, oh, esteemed audience, the ebook is free. Yes, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this. But seeing as how this is the Halloween episode of Middle Grade Ninja, although I would argue the last few episodes have been Halloween episodes, but this is a Halloween episode. If you're listening to it not on Halloween, eh, whatever. Remember, I've got some scary books available for you as well under the super secret pen name Robert, can't add two letters, Robert. <laughs> uh, you could check out my horror story all together now, a zombie story. Uh, you can check out my epic serial horror novel in the vein of Stephen King. That's the Book of David. You've got a haunted house. You've got flying saucers, lots of profanity, everything you could possibly want in a good scary Halloween story. And good news, that Book of David, you can. it's it's available as a five-volume serial installment horror novel, but you can get the first part of that, the Book of David, chapter one by Robert Kent, for free whenever you're watching or listening to this. So by God, we're only a couple of minutes in and I've already given you two free books. What more could you want? What a fantastic show this is. Uh, as always, for any interviews with all the world's best people, book people. I'm talking authors, I'm talking literary agents, editors. All of those interviews, plus guest posts and all sorts of insightful information is available at middlegradeninja.com, including a seven-question interview with today's guest, Mr. Dan Pablucky. Dan, welcome to the program. I'm thrilled that you're here.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm so pleased to be here.
0: Uh, so esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by making them sit through me summarizing their background <laughs> or their book. How painful that would be for you when you're right here and could mm. do a good job. Uh, so the best place to, uh, for us to get started is if you would give uh, esteemed audience an overview of your background. Sure.
1: Well, I'm Dan Poblaki. I'm the author of uh, at least 20 books um, over the past few 15 years, um, most of them under my own name. Um, A lot of them uh, sort of scary, spooky um, mysteries, ghostly stuff. Um, The newest one is called Tales to Keep You Up at Night. Um, It came out in August. And uh, it's my first kind of collection of short stories, but these stories are interlinked and there's a framing narrative. Um, that connects them even further. So it sort of reads like a novel. Um, Yeah, I've been doing this for um, like 15, 16 years and um, never thought that I was going to be a writer and uh, started writing one day and realized that I really loved it. Um, And thankfully and luckily, I'm still able to to do this. So that's that's basically my background.
0: So what a what a perfect guest that we're fortunate enough to have here for the Halloween episode. Um uh, because I've seen your name around with the scary book displays for years now. Um I've <laughs> Became aware of you back when uh, the nightmares came out. That was my first introduction, mm-hmm. uh, and then you've been steadily moving right along with uh, with well, a few other stories, but mostly the the scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know that you started with a degree in theater, right, from Syracuse University. I did. We're touring the United States playing Ichabod Crane, which that's very appropriate <laughs> to this Halloween episode.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So. It, so, how do you get uh, one? How does that prepare you for life as an author, traveling with a theater company? And then, two, how do you get from there to author?
1: Um, I, I mean, I think traveling with a theater company can just like prepare you for lots of things. <laughs> like, doesn't necessarily need need to lead to author. I like, think. Um... It's a very humbling experience, especially when you're doing theater for children and you're literally building the set and breaking it down every day in a new place, Um, oftentimes school auditoriums or gyms. And um, I think, I guess in, in a way, if I were to try and think of how it prepared me for this life that I'm living now, um i mean it was a very early sort of exposure to uh the educational system in this country i was working with um performing for uh educators and their students and you know afterwards the kids would come up and ask questions and um uh you know i realized i i, I mean i've always sort of had a, a rapport with with um with, with kids and like that youthful mind like I feel like that's sort of where that's sort of where I sort of <laughs> um sort of live in 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 my 12 year old memory. that's I think that's why i'm I'm I'm, I'm still right about that age um but um, the the touring, the acting, I think ultimately comes down to, um, uh, having having that in common, having same, something in common with writing, and that's that's just the love of storytelling um, from from the from another angle. Um, and storytelling is something that I've loved since I was a little kid. Uh, you know, getting together with friends and trying to come up with the scariest situation scenario, freak each other out. Um, I loved recounting the plots of the latest horror movie that I would see to my little cousins and get in trouble for for doing that. Um, It was just, it was always about, it was always about wanting to sort of impart and share something that I thought was really exciting and cool to whoever wanted to listen. So I think that's ultimately where, where the acting bug came in and really after those tours um, and living in New York city for a little while that fell away. I realized I did not like auditioning. I did not like spending eight hours at an open call and then having 30 seconds in front of um, casting directors and having them like, you know, dead eyed look at you and be like, thank you. And realize that you just wasted another, another day. So when I moved to, um, when I was in New York City and auditioning and doing that in the early, and the late 90s, um, I just realized, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. What what else do I have? What else can I do? What makes me happy? And it came back to the love of storytelling. And I was like, maybe I can try writing. And I mean, I took a playwriting class in college and I loved that. Um so I sort of started with that and through, you know, meeting some people in, in New York city and realizing like there was this whole children's literature world. Um, and, you know, I, I, I started I trying my own hand at it, um, and got really, really lucky. So that's, I, I guess that's where the, that's where the connection is. That's not really long, um, roundabout answer
0: <laughs> no i love long answers that uh, gets free information that i would never have been smart enough to ask <laughs> <laughs> that, that makes my job easy but eight hours for 30 seconds then you walk in and they're thinking i don't know we wanted somebody with uh, bright red hair which you don't have or whatever yeah. it is that they had their mind that they probably could have ruled out with a headshot yeah. before you ever walked in or, or wasted the day yeah. Assuming because you majored in theater because you you were sort of, you know, I'm not talking to you, and like that's when I stopped being an accountant and decided to go uh, be a children's book author. You, you always wanted to to, to to chase some sort of artistic endeavor, some sort of dream. Oh yeah, yeah. That must I, have been a, a hard decision to say that this there's a trade-off here, because I'm assuming at some point you loved acting. Decided, I did. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna step away completely.
1: I was a, I was a theater nerd in, in high school, like, and you know love to all of the theater nerds. <laughs> you make the world go round. Um but uh you know that was that was when it that was when it was fun for me like middle school, high school, like you know, being with my friends and like having an having extra time to like do do some just fun stuff. Um and then going to college for it um You know that changed things. There became there. There was this added pressure on top of it, and there was. I feel like at that point, because you're being graded, which is I I have my own opinions about that in terms of art school. Um, I think it's. I don't know. I don't think it's really fair, but um, there's this pressure, and there was this pressure about how. You're supposed to look and how you're supposed to talk and how like you know you know the thing the things some of the things that were said to me I can't imagine flying in today's world um when I was in school um I I had a great experience I loved my teachers I understand it was a different kind of world but um it was a world where people like me weren't necessarily, you know, going to be heading out there and finding jobs about, you know, like work, you know, acting roles about people like me. Like it was, you know, still, still the nineties and Will and Grace was just starting. And like, people were like, Oh my gosh, you know, queer people can exist on, um, on, on television and, and be popular. Like, how how can we monetize this? We haven't quite gotten to you know where we are now. But going back to, you know, the idea of being a creative person, wanting to be an artist, like for me, even in high school, it's like it was between like drawing and painting and had such a love for that. And then I loved my English classes. And so it was about like trying to consume as much literature as i could and think about those things and and um and then you know the 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 acting part the storytelling and singing and and I, I was in the choir it's like i did every single thing that i could try to do that made me feel like i was expressing myself um in in a truthful way um and uh, you know, when I when I was going looking at colleges, that was something that we were expected to do. Um, I was looking at theater schools and I was looking at art schools. And I I was I've always been obsessed with children's book illustration, and I I thought that it would be a fun thing for me to do. Um, I know very very difficult and hard to break into and sustain and all that stuff, but I was you know naive. Um, so even from, a, even from a very early age, like I sort of had this love for children's literature, um, and, uh, a, in a roundabout way, uh, came, came to where I am now. Um, I don't think the, the weird thing is, I don't think I'd be where I am right now if I didn't go through all of those, all of, all of those paths and roadways that, that I took, um, going to theater school and having that devastating realization that I didn't love it anymore. Um, when I was in New York city, after, you know, several years I, I was looking at, I was looking at people who were successful and realizing like they love this so much. They're so passionate about it that they're willing to stick with it, no matter how it makes them feel about it themselves about their bodies about you know what kind of feedback they're getting they like these people are are unique um hardcore you know uh passionate people and I realized that I didn't have that inside myself regarding um performance and and in fact like after I graduated from college I I ended up having like getting severe stage fright and I i just I started hating it um so when I had made that decision to stop auditioning I felt really lost uh for a long time um, and in those days I was um temping to make you know make my pay uh make my paycheck pay my rent um in New York City and those were interesting times in offices because like, it paid really well to temp. And oftentimes they just wanted somebody to fill a seat. And if the phone rang, you answered the phone and maybe took a message. A lot of those jobs at that time were just sitting and sitting and sitting. And so I was like, what am I gonna do with myself here? And I started writing. <laughs> so that's where it started for me um temping in new york city and being bored 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 um yeah and then and then i took a class um at school of visual arts um brian floca was my teacher uh caldecott winning um children's book artist uh this was way before that happened and uh, the the class was called children's books from the edge and I, I still remember wanting to sign up for this, um, sign up for this class, and, and it was a lot of fun. It was like, it was like, oh, like bring, bridging my old, my love, my old love for like children's literature and, and children's um, illustration um, to, you know, to something new and tangible for me and I was like I bought all these art supplies and I was really doing it and like I would come up with a manuscript and a dummy um a uh, book dummy and and uh what ended up happening was um uh Brian had, had uh an editor friend near the end of the class come in to talk to us about what, how publishing worked and the editor friend um was named David Levithan and he is, uh, at the time, he had just started a, an imprint at Scholastic called Push. Um, he was kind and generous enough to talk to us about picture books, even though that wasn't really his, um, his interest. Um, one class, I was heading home. I was living in Williamsburg. And walking home, I ran into Brian Floca and David Levithan and they had like this was just after class and they were heading to some some bluegrass concert um at at a, a local bar and they were like come and join us and through that i sparked friendships with both of them and that that was what changed my life i mean i i learned that you know not only was picture book illustration something that existed but it was like it was like this very early burgeoning of the YA resurgence, and and um, I, I I sort of paid very close attention to um, what I learned when I was around these people and um, temping in the offices that I was working at. Um, you know, I, I realized I was like, maybe I maybe I could try maybe I could try s- some of this YA stuff. And that was really my first attempt at becoming i wasn't I wouldn't say serious, I just like was just like playing around and seeing like, what if I try and write a novel instead of these little short stories that I've been um, playing around with um while sitting sitting for eight hours a day in a very quiet office and nobody looking at me. but that's um that's kind of how everything sort of fell apart and then. Reassembled. It was, I still look back at that one moment, um, making that choice to sign up for that um, continuing education class, um, and, and that changed my life. I mean, it's it's really weird to be able to look back at the one that one thing that if you hadn't done that, like you wouldn't be sitting where you are right now. Do you have any moments like that? You ever have any moments like that?
0: Um, I think everybody's got a a few pivotal moments. And there's also a few moments where I recognize and retrospect, oh, I blew that. I could have done better at that moment. That probably Mm. would have been a crucial moment if I had had been in my right mind or not in my mind, if I had been prepared. Uh, Because sometimes those moments come along. If you're not not friendly, if you're not open to it, Mm. if you're not in a good place, uh, Mm. you can blow right past it and miss it. And so I've got some more of it. Oh, my God, that, that worked out incredibly well. I would have never guessed. Thank God I was on it that day. And then some others like, you know what, I bet if I had been a little bit more on it that day, that seems like it was a good opportunity that I missed. Oh, well. I'd you're also love the idea that you're you're looking at the world of, of children's book illustrators and like, ooh, you could get rejected. That's very uncertain. I better stick with acting, better, better fall back on reliable theater to, <laughs> to make my living.
1: The funny thing about that is that um I knew I knew that there was like any time you're gonna put yourself into an art, an art or a creative field. Um, there's going to be rejection and there's gonna be a lot of rejection for me at that time um, I mean I had been getting lots of rejection as an actor um, but what sort of was difficult and more painful about that was like like what you said earlier like you walk into a room and you don't look like how they anticipated so they blow you off and it starts to get into your head like questioning like do I need to be skinnier do I need to have bigger muscles should I change my voice maybe my face isn't right like you know like all of these questions sort of like dig deep inside of your psyche and like are very very harmful at least for certain people and I'm one of those people um getting rejected where I'm not standing in the room with the person rejecting me, I feel it's much easier. Like uh, a rejection from an agent in, over email or in the in, you know, over mail back in the day when we we're sending actual letters to people, sending hard copies of manuscripts to people, having come back and be like, no thanks, and either getting a reason why it was a no thanks or not. Like, great. I don't have to stand in the room with you while you say that to me and then like slink down a hallway and take a subway home. Like, I'm just like, all right, I can turn on TV now or open a book and like move on. So I'm not saying that, um, I'm not saying that it's any easier necessarily to, to be rejected by, you know, by any, any anybody who's gatekeeping or, or, producing or directing or casting anything. Um uh, just just for me personally, I think it was just like I need I need to remove myself from a situation where all of this self-doubt is creating real, you know, problems. Um and uh, you know, thankfully, you know, I'm not I'm not in that kind of space anymore. Um, and i think it's hard i i think i i really like that's why i say i have so much respect for the people who've stuck with it and i have friends from college who have stuck with it and you know maybe it took them 20 years it's been more than 20 years i guess about 20 years since i've left college um and they're just now like starting to find their groove in terms of like hollywood or theater or something like like i was like tw- 20 years I, I couldn't even imagine sticking through 20 years of auditioning and you know doing all doing all the stuff that you have to do in order to have people remember your name in your face and be like oh yeah this person they have a great reputation should we consider them for this job finally yeah let's do it um i mean i've i've friends like i like i said i have friends who are who are at that point now and i'm so proud of them i'm I'm like it's unbelievable i could i wouldn't i'm not that kind of person
0: i find it um I don't know if interesting is the right word, but it's amusing to me because I would think that being rejected as an actor would be easier. Oh, you were looking for a redhead. I'm not. Then that's fine. I'm sorry you wasted my eight hours, but that's OK. I brought a, a project or something. I, I made the most use of my time. Um, whereas or if uh, you say oh, he's too handsome for the role, his muscles are too large. Oh, for yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> whereas if you're looking at my manuscript, I'm not there. It's you're not rejecting me. It's my art. Everything I had I put into that and it still wasn't good enough versus if I just walked into the room and you don't like my face, but you didn't even see my art. Yeah. That, that would have struck me as easier, but that sounds like that's not the case. It was so much easier just to have the the, the impression of the of of the work.
1: I think it depends on the kind of person you are. Like and, and at, at that time in my life, it was it was much harder to face people. Um, you know to face people and see that kind of reaction uh ra- rather than like sending multiple letters to multiple people manuscripts or whatever whatever it was tra- was trying to do and like all of that those decisions happening in some other room far away like it was like a very psychological sort of thing but um yeah i can i can uh, see the, the ca- reactions
0: that came were just such a nice relief and a, and a break in the pace like, oh that's fine it's just a yeah. piece of paper i don't have to look at you while you do it. great put it over there
1: yeah <laughs> and, and like i said like i think there's a huge aspect of like not having to get on the train and like ride somewhere and like then be rejected i was like you're gonna reject me just like i want to stay home for it so um yeah
0: that is a huge advantage of writing over anything that's collaborative uh like that like that or like you were in music you gotta go to the band practice you gotta get everybody together whereas writing it's just you uh it's two o'clock in the morning the whole world's asleep i think i feel like this is dan's time to shine i'm doing this yeah
1: and yeah and that's and that's how it works sometimes you know it's like you pull all-nighters if you if you want you can um you're feeling that inspiration. It's it's a it's it, there's a freedom to it. Um, if you're lucky enough to have that, you know, kind of freedom. Like I worked, um, I worked for 12 years for uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in sort of like an administration, different administration roles and research and and analyst roles. Um, and I did. I did most of my early writing career while, while working there at the same time. Um, and so oftentimes, yeah, it would, it, like, I'd start writing at 11 PM after coming home from working all day and then maybe going to the gym, making myself dinner and be like, all right, well, let's, let's get, let's crack open the computer, see how many words we can get down. And that was, like that, I spent years doing that um, because I found a new passion <laughs> instead of like the acting and or you know the drawing and painting. I was like, I'm I'm determined to get a, a draft of this manuscript done. Um, like, and that was the difference between like what I what why I felt I had to leave like the performance sort of arena um, because. I didn't have the passion for, for performing, for acting, for singing. And I didn't believe that I would a- actually ever be able to make it um, or make a living or, you know, have it be worth my while. Whereas I felt a passion to write. Um, I, and um, And like my first attempt at, at a had a book. it took me four years. It was 700 pages. Um, it was a young adult novel, <laughs> 700 page young adult novel that like was just contemporary kids in a high school. I mean, I feel like that was if I were to, you know, to think about it in terms of like a master's or something, that was like my education by by doing it myself, learning, Learning how to finish something, despite the fact that it went on and on and on and on, and is probably just—I—I I hope all copies have been destroyed, um,
0: <laughs> except for the one they're going to put in the damn oh, Memorial. Library. I
1: know, like, you know, I heard a story a couple years ago. You know, I'm sure you know who John Bellairs is. Um,
0: I'm not right? a podcast. Yes, I do.
1: <laughs> for anybody who doesn't um and you should because he he does some good stuff um he is author of the house of the clock in its walls uh the curse of the blue figurine um the um just so so many other sort of uh gothic uh 1950s set americana like witches and wizards and Spooky ghosts and and curses and stuff like that. I loved him when I was a kid, like beyond. And um, I heard that before he passed away, you know, very young, uh, in in the early nineties, mid nineties, like he went through his office and like burned everything. <laughs> Um he he knew he was he knew he was sick. And uh he was like, there was just stuff in there. He was like, I don't want, I don't ever want this to be seen. And I I understand that urge at this point. Sorry to be laughing while discussing one of my heroes', you know, passings, but I do understand the um the urge to be like, well, when I'm gone, like, you know what kind of exploitation might be taking place you know um and uh i mean the funny thing about that is that like his estate has gone on to work with an author named brad strickland and continue um some of his unfinished um manuscripts and those sort of became a a brad strickland john belair's collaboration and uh so i mean clearly there was stuff he didn't burn and that he was proud of and that he wanted to have live on after he was gone but um i just yeah i'm gonna have to look around here and see like what 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 will be going into the bonfire (laughs) if ever if ever my time comes up and i'm i'm aware
0: Yeah, should you have the good fortune to to know the day and be like, okay, well, I could be hundred percent prepared on that day. <laughs> Whereas I have just, I, I understand that because there, there are things. I'm looking at a shelf right across from me that has some screenplays I wrote when I was in high school. That mm. um, <laughs> there, there there are moments in there that I thought were very funny at age 18 that I do not find funny now. Oh yeah, I, um, bet. I have just enough hubris that I think that if anybody were to go through it after I'm not around, one, I'm not here. So. Do, knock yourself out whatever (laughs) there is an afterlife i like to think that it's interesting enough i'm not paying attention to what's still going on back here um this is is my hope or there there is no me in which case whatever um (laughs) i have just enough hubris to think that oh well if you read this you'll know it's not good but you'll see that there's just that spark of the excellence that was going to go on (laughs) like the bonfire of amazingness later (laughs) exactly
1: i mean you have to you have to wonder about the the giants of of these genres it's like did they ever did they ever just write something really really bad um <laughs> that they never showed to anybody and then, and the answer must be yes it has to be yes nobody's just pumping out something that um that is perfect and first go like that's why we work with editors that's why we work with agents and these people like absolutely fundamentally help shape our our work and try and get it to be the best version of what it is that we first imagined the work to be i feel so lucky i, I feel so lucky to be working with people that i work with and have worked with um, because i i don't i don't think i could have uh, you know managed to to make the things that i've made on my own um, you get your foot in the door with one person, and and you realize that they are, they have some genius brilliance, and they're like, all oh, they suggest they, they suggest these little edits or you know things that happen, and like all of a sudden you think it's your idea, <laughs> and you're like, gosh, of course I should have done that to this character. And, no, this ending can't work. It's you know, it's like that needs to be rewritten. But like these little like. These little, like, author whisperers, you know, these magical editor people, they're like, this needs to change, and I'm not going to say anything negative about it, but it's your idea, you know, like, stuff like that, I think they're amazing.
0: (laughs) You know, uh, this is, uh, I think, episode 189, Uh, and so now when I teach writing workshops, or I talk about writing, or even on the show... I I just assume I'm regurgitating something, somebody far oh, more sure. brilliant said on the show that I've heard and has gotten mixed up a little bit in the back of my mind that, oh, no, that's not an original thought. I assume it comes from a good place, though. So <laughs> I say, I
1: say, I'm sure I do the same thing. And I say, take it, embrace it. It's, you know, it's up for grabs, especially if you're teaching other people, <laughs> like, you know, um, that kind of stuff is, it feels like, it, it almost becomes universal and you must share it.
0: <laughs> I and the people that that said it to me learned it from someplace. I assume they're not born with the sacred knowledge that they getting <laughs> for the first time. Yes, so the I sacred, was, uh, sacred knowledge that, of artists. Uh, for that early work that, that I know I have. And I, I'm convinced Stephen King has it also. Obviously, a far more talented uh, fellow oh my than gosh. myself. Uh, but when he, when he released Blaze, uh, for Richard Bachman, there's a oh, long yeah. uh, forward on that that says, "Hey, this was an early novel. Some may say this is just a Trump novel and and it shouldn't have been published." And like, well, I I'm thinking you're saying that because I'm reading it in your forward, and then I read the book, but you know what? You were right. There there's some <laughs> good here, but there's some also really embarrassing moments along in that story. Like that <laughs> shouldn't have been published, but I understand why you published it because there were there were some really good moments to outweigh the there's there's a hard. Attack scene, it's just absurdly ridiculous that, like, if you turn it in a <laughs> workshop, they'd say, Sir, no.
1: Uh, <laughs> sir, no. And they please, it the editor, they say, oh,
0: Stephen, you've done it again, we're all gonna buy boats. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you
1: <laughs> get to a, you get to a point like that, and like, yeah, people are just people are gonna say, Yes, <laughs> yes, you're brilliant. And I feel like I feel like for him, I don't, I mean, I'm I want to speak for Stephen King, but like. I feel like it's got to be harder at this point for him to be edited and I I know he's asked I, I when I when I was um when Lisi's story came out uh, I remember he had asked to work with somebody who wasn't his regular editor I think you know his regular editor was was a man and he was like this story is so female centered he was like I would really love to be working with with a woman editor on this and um came you know he said the manuscript came back covered in red ink which he was very grateful for but um i i I imagine that he would probably i don't know like at a certain at a i probably at his at his level and his age it's like he's going to do what he wants you know like he's gonna he's gonna take the he's gonna take the book and and how do you how do you edit Stephen King that at that point like you know like I just it's it's interesting to me you know how do you do you trust your genius brain or you know are you going to listen to somebody else um probably also genius you're editing stephen king um no you know slight to the wonderful publishing professionals who work with him i just i can just imagine it would just be very difficult for both of them
0: i don't think they'd serve up an intern like go talk (laughs) no (laughs) no yeah it seems like a, a particularly sadistic act of cruelty i
1: would Can you I imagine uh, Like, amazing like yeah i started at scribner and um you know i was pour- i was pouring coffees the other day and somebody asked me to take a look at stephen king's new manuscript and i just wrote some thoughts down yeah well, they'd be out the door
0: as we record this, I'm uh, a couple of hours into the fable audiobook. We'll see how it ends. I've heard it unravels, but man, that, that, that man can nail a beginning. Oh. Just So I'm not, yeah, but it will continue to be excellent.
1: I've heard good things. I I'm, I'm, I'm right now. I'm in, um, I'm in the middle of reading different seasons, the novellas, um, with uh, the body and apt pupil and Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption breathing method, Um, reading it for the first time, um, ultimately because I'm trying to understand or see the voice, especially for the the novella, the body of, um, of this kind of like somebody looking back when I think of the movie stand by me, it's, you know, from the perspective of a narrator who's looking back in his childhood and that's, I think I feel like Stephen Kane does a really great job of, of um, capturing children um, on the page, child child characters. It's like one of his biggest strengths. Um, and as a middle grade author, like I'm often writing from the perspective of um of the kids themselves, you know, in present time, you know whether I don't think I've ever written anything other than maybe one of the short stories in the new collection. That's not third person. Um, but uh, I, I, I've wanted to sort of ex- see how the, the this master is able to, to from a, an adult perspective, looking back sort of with nostalgia um uh, through that lens, see how he is able to tell that story. Because I, 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 I want to work on a project where, you know, an adult person is looking back on a, on a child's experience, rather than like what I usually do, which is the child's experience told as a child. Um, so that's what I'm doing. But like, so I, I've heard, you know, this fairy tale, kind of, kind of captures. Some oh yeah, fair. As well. what uh,
0: you know, the new Stephen King. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to reading that one too. But uh I, I do try to change it up and not only read Stephen King exclusively. <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, no, that's a, that's a trap I've fallen into in the past, and then I start thinking, "Well, this is the way. This is the only way it can be." <laughs> read read other writers. There's all sorts of brilliant folks out there, yeah. uh, like uh, like Dan Popluck. Let's dive in uh, and and talk a little bit about Tales to Keep You Up at Night. Uh, so true to my word, I won't make you sit through me summarizing your book to you. <laughs> what does esteemed audience need to know about Tales to Keep You Up at Night?
1: Tales uh, to Keep You Up at Night. Um... It's right here. Uh, This is Amelia. Um, The story is about Amelia. She finds a book in her grandmother's attic while she and her her parents are helping clean out grandmother's house because her parents are getting ready to sell it. Grandmother's been missing, presumed dead for about a year. Um, Amelia finds A book in the attic called Tales to Keep You Up at Night. And it appears to be from a library. Um, And so she doesn't really want to be in the house. She's sort of mad at her mothers um, for cleaning out grandmother's things when Amelia herself believes grandmother might still be around. Um, And she tries to bring the the library book back to the library library and librarian says this book never belonged here but I remember this. I remember reading this book. It's really scary. And something tells Amelia to sit down at the library and start reading the book. And as she does, she realizes that these stories are connected to her own life in many, many ways. And um, as she's reading them, like pieces of the story start to appear in the library, the library around her. So that by the end um, she finds herself in a lot of trouble. Um, that's, basically what tales to keep you up at night is about and um it's like 13 stories um plus amelia's story tying them all together and i just had a blast coming up with like some of the trying to come up with the scariest stuff that i could think of for kids without sort of going too far
0: <laughs> what uh, what does it mean to go too far do you have a hard, hard and fast rule when you're writing horror for children
1: you know, it's funny cuz some sometimes I'll get feedback from editors and they're like we need you to do bad things <laughs> to your characters. Um you haven't gone far enough. And I'm like, "Really?" And and you know, Shadow House is one example of that. They were like, "We need you to kill somebody." I was like, "Okay." Um and then and then there'll be other times where like I'll just write, I'll like I'll write and see what see what I can get away with. I mean, um there's there's not gonna be any kind of like um you know adult material in there. Like I, I mean, I just feel like I sort of have a sense of like where's where you draw the line. I've gotten some feedback to pull back on certain things that have to do with like um one of the thing, like one of the things in goes in um in a, well, I, I won't say the title of the book, but a character passes away in one of my books, a major character, and I wrote a grieving family scene after, you know, this character passes, and out of all the scary things that happen in the book, like the editor was like, the grief is too much. <laughs> Like take out the grieving family and we'll just jump to like what happens after the family has this moment of grief. And I was like, that's really interesting. I was like, I never considered that like that might be the traumatic aspect of what happens or what a reader, a young reader might be able to sort of ingest like, like that might be what is too much. Um. And then sometimes it's you know a little bit of like blood, gore, guts. You just kind of have to reframe um, um reframe the, the scene, reframe the details, leave out um what can be imagined. And sometimes that's even worse, you know, <laughs> like um. describing like vaguely describing a monster who might be holding something bloody or whatever like you know let let the audience fill in the gaps um i've i've found to be a pretty good rule for getting away with um um scary stuff for kids and i like trust me i don't want to traumatize anybody i don't want somebody coming away from my book feeling like um, they they feel hurt or, or anything like that. My experience is reading uh, uh, scary stories when I was a kid, like oftentimes were very comforting and cozy. Uh, John Beller's books were very cozy. Yeah, they, they always ended with like the main character having a hot chocolate by a fire with a beloved elderly friend or family member. I don't necessarily go there, but I do try to leave the characters in at least in the end of the novels, um, and Amelia too, uh, in, in a place where there's there's some there's even just a tiny, tiny little spark of hope for them. Um I don't know. Um that, no- that novel that killed that major character, I've gotten a lot of letters from kids and readers who were like, why did you do that? I had to sit there with my mom and come up with a new ending, like where the person survived. And it may be a question, like maybe I shouldn't have done it, but I did it for a reason. Like in terms of like the long, the long game that I'm playing, I was like, if I, if, if everybody survives in every single one of my books, I was like, then and you're, and you're a fan and you're reading them. Like, and then you, you just expect everybody to always be okay in the end. And I was like, that lowers the stakes. Um, Even if I, I I was like, I have to do it at least once. I was like, I have to, I have to do this bad thing (laughs) to a character at least once So that if you are a fan and you're reading through the catalog and you encounter this book and you're like, Oh no, nobody's safe. Then, you know, you you can continue reading my, my books as they come out, if I'm lucky enough to keep publishing them and like always wonder like, is, is the, is the main character going to come out okay in the
0: end? So well, hopefully they read that book as number two or three and the read and yes. they're reading and not the last one. They're like, yeah. oh, were ah, and then so the- now I am shook, but I've read the last book, so that I have <laughs> <laughs> the shookness. <laughs>
1: the shookness, yes.
0: <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it makes sense. You have to prove you have to demonstrate that you're willing to kill the hostage occasionally or how are they gonna take you serious? That makes sense.
1: Yeah. And it's weird because these are for kids. You know, and I don't want to. I don't want to hurt any children, scar them psychologically or mentally. But the thing that I've learned about these kinds of books is that, you know, either you're a kid who didn't know that you liked scary stories, and you pick one up and you're like, oh, I like books. I didn't realize I liked books, or, um, or you're a long term fan of of, scary stories, and so they're used to it, or like they're just not for you, like. You don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're feeling anxiety from like entertainment. And there's tons of people out there who I talk to who are like, I just don't like them. I don't like scary stories. I will never read one of your books. And like, that's fine. You know yourself. Um, so ultimately, like if you're one of those kids who's like, this is too much for me. Like I've, I've never met a child who's been like, this is too much for me, but I have to finish it it's too much for me, I'm closing it and I'm putting it aside. Maybe I'll come back to it one day. Maybe I never will. But like, you know, that's kind of the great thing about books (laughs) is you can close them (laughs) and stop reading them. And then you don't have to be in that scary situation
0: anymore. So... Uh, you know, I push back on on uh, when when Alia Malenica was here, she said something similar was that you put the book down and it's over. And I, I disagree a little bit. That's the nice thing. The nice creeping insidious thing about horror fiction. Oh, yeah. Is if it gets scary enough before you put it down, oh, it's there. You're going to carry that. Oh, for before. sure. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that will make you a more interesting person, a more nuanced person who sees things. you. It's good to be shaken up once in a while. I 100% believe that. Um, I think, no I, I there is no safety even if everybody lives okay you get to the ending where they're all having hot chocolate but if i read enough of this and you get dark enough before that i know that it could have gone another way and just the fact that i had that thought it still happened even if it didn't happen you know what i mean
1: yeah yeah and and that's and that's how books that's how books work that's how stories and and literature fiction nonfiction works it's like gets into your head sometimes and makes you think and for better or worse sometimes it changes you. No, and you're right. Like you if, you know, even if you put a book down, um the thing that scared you in the first place isn't just going to evaporate from your head. However, this is something one of the things that I when I when I talk to Schools and libraries and students. Um, I, I I mentioned this elsewhere as well. Um, I show I will show that I will show the kids this gif that I found of these. Basically, the image is a very dark hallway with a light at the end, and there's a doll standing in the middle of the hallway. Um, super creepy looking. These two kids, they can't be more than like ten years old. They come around the corner, both freeze when they see the doll. One of the kids like books it back in the other direction, disappears. But his friend races forward, kicks the doll in the face and the doll goes flying. And I think it's a perfect representation of like, like the two, like these two kinds of readers. It's like you you face your fears or you run away. And in both are absolutely valid. I'm not saying like you encounter something scary, you go and like punch it in the face. Sometimes the best course of action is to run away. But but I do usually tell the the audiences of when I'm when I'm showing them this, I'm like, I I I wanna believe I like in in like a half-hearted, like sort of like silly kind of way, like I tell them like pretty sure that the kid who went forward and kicked that doll in the face has read some of my books. Because ultimately, like that's what scary stories can do. Um, I feel like they can make you like they they sort of teach you how to be brave. Like if you can sit, you scan through this terrifying chapter of, you, you know, like Ali Mel- Melanenko's book, This Appearing House, where horrifying monsters exist. Um, you get through those chapters. Um, you get through the journey that you go through with the main character Jack who is not only seeing monsters on the outside but fighting monsters in her own head and fighting monsters in her own body Um, you 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 come away from that book and, and a lot of these scary stories understanding how the world works and that it's not all rainbows and unicorns and pretty flowers and best friends and sleepovers and like not disparaging any of those kinds of stories because those are appealing and fun as well. But, um. but you, you read, you read horror and you, it, it, it changes you, you know, and I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing.
0: I mean, it would be if you were going to live in a perfectly safe world where nothing bad ever happened and you were never going to have to deal with adversity. It was just going to be sleepovers and hot chocolate forever. Well, why have you taken time and, and read this nasty story? But if you're going to live in a world like the one most of us are, where we are going to encounter some of this stuff, I think it's a mistake to go through even your early childhood and never test those waters a little bit. You don't have to, you don't have to go, you know, you don't have to start in the deep end of the pool. You don't have to wake up and read Nietzsche one day at age six. You know, you can you can wade your way in one toe at a time slowly. Start with the Nicola, start with some early RL Stein, then get yeah. your hands on some damn pop blocking you. some. Yes, there's Vinicula.
1: there's there's levels of levels of fear, layers of fear. Um it, it, talking about kids now and, and what they're experiencing and, and have experienced over the course of the past 25 years where it start like you know i know i know this was a problem before columbine but like you know sh- active shooter drills that like you know like the amount of scary things that are coming at us at, at at all times from the media um and like like we were talking earlier on like uh you know. Um honestly that that thought just flew out of my head. <laughs> so you can cut that part no, out.
0: Right. The uh the the idea that um the child has to go to school and you know, when I you not want to teach I've done active shooter drills. It's terrifying. You have to you because yeah. what you come to realize just in the drill that they're we Had somebody walked around with a um, gun that shot little ping pong balls. I couldn't dodge oh. the ping pong balls, I'm not dodging bullets. Oh
1: um, my gosh, that, really? That's a thing that you had to do?
0: Uh, yeah, I was uh training uh to be a, a, a substitute teacher. It was just oh so, you know they would go and they, you know, and you had to experience where you need to be in a room to be out of the line of fire, how to barricade the door. I mean, stuff that you know. Uh, knock on wood won't come in handy, but I live here in the United States where apparently we're going to continue to sacrifice. I don't know how many children every year because we love guns just that much. So, so long as I live in that country and we're going to continue with this madness, it is a practical thing to know and these yeah. children the idea that they're going to live in that world they're going to know they're going to know that the adults in their life are okay with some of them dying so that we can continue to live the way that we've lived they're mm-hmm. going to know that but this story is too scary this this fiction oh, yeah. that traumatized me
1: well it's it's funny i was in a wonderful i went up to saratoga springs here in new york state uh, a couple weekends ago to go on a ghost tour of um like a historic ghost tour of of the city and ended up at this bookstore called North Shire Books, Saratoga. And it has one of the most incredible children's sections I've, I've ever seen, um, upstairs on the second floor. I had done a, um, an event with them a very, very very long time ago, maybe 10 years ago. And, um, I hadn't back been back up there. It's, it's about an hour and a half from my house. so It's not not necessarily a place for him, like heading every weekend. Um, but I walked in there, and um, you know, when when I started, um, just to flash back a little bit, when I started working on the Stone Child, my first book, there were there were a few um, middle grade scary titles floating about. Brad Strickland was still making books um based on the John Beller's um uh characters and of course long long uh days like Mary Downing Hahn were continuing to write a book a year and she still is she's amazing um and you know many more Jonathan Oxier was uh doing The Night Gardener and and um Adam um, Gidwitz with Tail Dark and Graham, like all of these sort of like had, you know, elements of of scary stuff going on. But they weren't like, they weren't like pervasive, like at that time in terms of trade books, like they existed, but it wasn't like a focus. And when I walked into the children's section at Northshire, like almost every title I was seeing faced out or like you know maybe it's the time of year but like there were so many middle grade horror novels I was like what happened like horror exploded and the more that I'm talking to teachers and educators librarians they're like we cannot keep scary stories for kids on the shelves they're checked out immediately and they're asking for more like in am twitter like people asking like what are what's more titles we can get into our library like the kids are blowing through them and i think it speaks to what's happening in this country right now and in this world's like and like what i said like how that kid rushing forward and kicking the doll in the face like kids are trying to learn how to cope with their own anxieties and fears and i think these books are are helping um and i think people like Unfortunately, we've gotten to a point where it's necessary for us to be able to share these kinds of stories with young people so that they can process drama. Um, they can process the, th- the scary thoughts that go through their head at night or at school, during a test, or, you know, having even on a simple level of like just being a kid and having an argument with your friend like you know that can be a scary thing um and a lot of these books are metaphors for for those for those kinds of real life um real life events that kids are dealing with Uh, I, i just i think it's amazing that um publishers and and bookstores are sort of opening their eyes to seeing like how very powerful and popular um, these books can be, you know, like post goosebumps, which I sort of like missed in the nineties. I was a little too old for that. Like there was that surge in, in horror in the nineties. And there was a, that surge in horror in like the seventies and, and, and the eighties it it goes in these ways. And I feel like we're, we're definitely at the top of a, a wave right now with this particular genre.
0: Well, no, that makes sense. You can't, you know, you can't kick the all of the gun lobby. Uh, you can't kick uh, systemic corruption on our political level that allows these guns continue to be ever present. But a, a creepy doll in a hall, you can kick that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can, you can have that moment of of, of catharsis, or if you can mm-hmm. put it all into one monster, you can maybe beat the monster. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I appreciate. I appreciate that. That's where we're at because this is something that I've that I've felt has been important for a long time. Like stuff I've got, I've gotten pushback from from strangers at parties. Like when I'm telling them what what I do for a living, I've I've learned not to say I write horror for children anymore wow. because <laughs> people don't want to hear that. Yeah. I I will tell them I write literature for young people, and I'm like, oftentimes it's spooky, scary. Mysteries, sometimes involving ghosts. Like, it's vaguer than, like, the punch of the word horror, which I think some people don't want to hear. Some people don't care, but, like, I've gotten um, responses from people that are, like, literally somebody said to me, like, a stranger said to me, like, oh, that hurts my heart. And I was like, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that somebody said um what i do when i'm passionate about doing the stories and i'm passionate about telling hurts their heart um but you know to each his own and you know i i would never say that to somebody but um
0: you should have said how'd you get here today you must have been <laughs> in bed just from the moment you turned on the television and saw the state of the world but like, oh my heart no nope, but I'm...
1: <laughs> yeah your heart must hurt a lot
0: you
1: know i don't know if <laughs> I love kids. I love how strong they are. I love how open they are to noticing the world and they're they're noticing everything. And like you, you said you have a, a, a child and you know, I'm sure you're, you're seeing like every day is a new experience where like you might, you might learn something that cracks your head open, like and blows your mind. Like, Something about dinosaurs or something about black holes or something like you're constantly the world is reframing itself every single day. Um and I think we don't give kids enough credit for the massive amounts of change that they are going through moment by moment um and processing. Um and I think you know uh I, I think if we did, if we did understand that, like, nobody would ever say to somebody, somebody else that that hurts your heart, you know.
0: Very passive aggressive thing to say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just walked away. I walked away. I was like, well, I, in fact, no, I think I actually said to this person, I said, well, I get a lot of letters from, from par- parents and readers and. Uh, um. uh and these these are the most special things to me, um, where somebody will say like my kid has been you know scared to pick up a book because they have a learning disability or you know some kind of um, some kind of neurodivergence or whatever um, sort of been discouraged from picking up big challenging books and like they're like they found your book. They now wanted to read it three or four times with me, without me, like wanted, they have all these questions for you about like where it's set and all this stuff. And like Now they want to read more books. Now they've discovered that they like reading. I'm like, how could you possibly say that what I've done is harmful? Like this, I, I, I created a reader <laughs> like and not just one. <laughs> so um, that was my response that was my response to to somebody sort of being negative towards the genre that i have tended to focus on um, um and i think that was i think that was fair is the best that i could do at that at that
0: moment yeah, but the answer that i could give you is that you've provoked them to have independent thoughts i wanted them to think what i wanted them to think oh
1: and that's <laughs> the scariest thing for adults like that's scarier than monsters is to have my child think for themselves (laughs) and that's why you know so so the 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 trouble with uh what's happening in the country in terms of people trying to restrict access to books and in libraries and schools and school districts and even in bookstores anymore like people suing authors and, and publishers to not even carry books in bookstores like can we stop please Yeah, that's
0: the uh, that's the adult version of what we were talking about when you're looking for a metaphorical monster that you can you can tackle. Oh, for sure. Um, That if I can't deal with, I don't want to deal with the fact that our system is inexorably broken. How much money goes in from the gun lobby to elect these 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 politicians that get up and tell you global warming isn't real. Oh, my God. How could I possibly hope to deal with that? But violent video games, I can find out who made a violent video game and we can hurt their bottom line. Yeah. I can't get to I can't get to all of my existential dread about the fact that I might have told my child some things that weren't correct but I did the best that I could and other they have questions that are big on their own how am I supposed to confront that but I can confront Dan Poplocky I can tell him it it's my heart
1: please don't
0: that's <laughs> <laughs> saying it's right I just understand how that that spirals and and, and becomes a, yeah, a problem no, I, I,
1: <laughs> I got you. I got you. Yeah, I hear you.
0: No, nobody here is endorsing. Do not contact. Not <laughs> don't, your heart. don't
1: contact me if I've hurt your heart. Or, or, or
0: challenging <laughs> children to treat and, uh, to think independently. This oh, is ultimately gosh. for their benefit, which means yeah. it's for all a benefit. Yeah. Yep. We, we skipped over uh, some of the origin story uh, and I, and Probably just as well because we're 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 coming up on the the end of our time together. But I did love this idea that you get in this class, um, you're right away you're 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 working with brilliant folks, and then I know that you get involved in a an actual critique group, uh, and that one member of that group worked with some editors at Random House. Or how, how does that story go? You know better than I do.
1: Yeah, I um so like I like I stated taking that classes school of visual arts becoming friends with Ryan Floka and David Levithan David Levithan was um is uh an editor scholastic became a huge big best selling author in his own right with um everyday um and that whole series as well as many other books for young young readers um David was kind enough to bring me into an early version of a book group that he was starting in like 2000, 2001, um, where we were reading sort of like what he considered the, you know, the, the, the essential young adult canon. Um, I think he was starting to teach a class at that new, at the new school in children's literature and, and, and even, um, with his new imprint um, at that time uh, called Push. He was trying to sort of school himself and educate himself in all of the things that had come before. So through that group, I started meeting um, other writers, agents, editors, um, friends of David, um, connected with some of them formed a very very small writing group um these these friends of mine um uh billy nico and nick uh um they knew that i was working on a, a manuscript I, they knew about my 700 page like ridiculous you know um y- young adult novel well, we
0: said um and that i people so publish it <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
1: um and they they uh and i had worked was working on something else we're getting pretty close to having a draft of that ready and um we were sharing sharing work i can't remember if it was like once a week or once a month we get together and it was somebody else's turn to like share whatever we'd you know produced and it was a way to push ourselves to um get get work done um and uh you know, ultimately, then um, I didn't. I didn't even know Nick. Nick Eliopoulos was uh, an editorial assistant at the time at Random House Books for Young Readers. Um, I didn't. I was so like green. I didn't even know what that meant. Like, first of all, they invited me into the writing group, um, uh, or we decided to do this all together. I didn't. I didn't know Nick very well. I I didn't even consider that like he was working in children's publishing. I finished that that manuscript that I was working on um, post the seven hundred page um, debacle, and shared it with with the group, and they were they all were like, "We love this. This is this is really good." And I was like, "Really? What?" And Nick was like, I, "Can I take this into my um my." job my crew and show it to show it to the people see what they think and i was like are you i was like is this is that possible like is that really a thing that could happen and um he did it he he brought this you know first draft of of a of a book that um that i was that i is not is not published into this um into the uh, editorial acquisitions meeting and had them check it out, and like half of the editors like really liked it, and half of them were like, "This isn't, this isn't ready." Um, and so ultimately, what they asked him to do was work with me on the manuscript over the course of the next year, and then resubmit. Um, and so I did that, and and in the meantime, you know, things moving really slowly. I'm still sort of I'm, I'm working at Sloan Kettering at that point. Um, and I, I was inspired to dig out all of the John Belair's books from my mom's basement. And I was like, I'm not, I was like, I'm, I'm not seeing any, I was like, I want, I want to read books like this. I haven't seen anything like this sort of sparking my imagination lately. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to try and write one of these. So I wrote 80 pages of something I was calling the stone child and I shared it with my writing group and they all flipped out, and they were like, "This is, we love this." Um, and Nick was like, "I have to take this in to sort of to to my to the editors and 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 show them this. It might push them forward into saying yes to the manuscript that they're considering right now." And I was like, "I was like, this is eighty pages. I don't think I've even combed through it to correct spelling mistakes." He was like, "It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter." So what ended up happening was. Um, uh like a, a month or so later like they ended up he he called me on the phone he was like they don't want the manuscript that you that you've been working on but they were like they love this stone child thing um so much they want to give you a two book contract for this and you know something else and i was like it was, it was like jaw dropping i was like i couldn't believe my luck um, I couldn't believe that that was how I got my foot in the door. And trust me, like it was rough. I feel like my foot was slammed in that door many times um but eventually like you know, like as 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 an unpublished and sort of untrained writer at that time, um, you know, I had, I had no idea what I was doing. I had 80 80 rough pages in that I had accepted as as, you know, the first book in a contract with one of the major publishers on the planet. And um, then I had to finish writing it. <laughs> um, it, it was, it was the most, it, it, it broke my brain. It was the most stressful thing that I think I'd ever been through, which, which only was stressful because I wanted it so badly. Like I, I, I was determined. Um. To kick that door, kick the door open. <laughs> People like traditionally, if you're trying to publish traditionally, um, you're you're querying and you know querying and querying and getting rejections and querying and like that 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 has happened to me since since that first sort of like miraculous yes that I got from Random House, but um, it was not how I got myself into the business. And like, I look back, I'm like, that was, that was insane. I can't believe that that happened. And I don't, I don't think that there, I think it was a very specific time in publishing um, that people were willing to give people like me a chance uh, to prove themselves. Um, I don't know if we're in, like, I don't, I don't know the publishing industry like what's happening behind closed doors what people are saying but like i don't think we're in a place like that anymore where people are just like yeah let's throw you know this much money at them and see what happens i don't, I just don't think that's happening anymore
0: well you withdrew your uh bloodied stump of a foot from the door then. <laughs> oh, and by it, god you I limped do. on for a bit but now i'm talking to you 20 books in still going strong
1: yeah <laughs> Fingers crossed. (laughs) Keep this up. My foot hurts. (laughs) (laughs) Keep kicking that door down.
0: Well, esteemed audience, knows that I have to ask because I ask everybody that comes on the show, and they're leaning forward extra because when I talk to a horror author, and and, you know, being a horror author, I know part of everyone's unspoken questions: What happened to you? (laughs) (laughs) Why why, why do you write these things? Uh, Dan Pavlacky, have you ever seen a ghost and/or a flying saucer?
1: Oh boy, I think yes to both. Excellent. Um, Flying saucer. I'll I'll do the flying saucer one. Uh, Grew up in uh, spent a lot of time in in my teen years in New Jersey. Uh, I was born in Rhode Island, moved to New Jersey when I was eleven years old, which is right around that time that I'm I'm that age group that I continued to go back to writing. So like I'm I'm pretty sure something something is you know stuck in my brain about that transition um from one state to another uh hanging out with um close friend caroline one night in basking ridge new jersey up in the hills outside of uh outside of the center of town and stuff very clear vision of the night sky and like i just remember looking up um my sister i think my sister was there and my friend caroline and looking up um at just at the stars and like One of them started making this weird, like it looked like a star and like started making this weird sort of like unusual movement. Like it didn't look like an airplane. It didn't look like a satellite. And like all of a sudden it just like kind of did a check mark and then like shot off. And I'm like, I'm like, that was a UFO. UFO." So yes, I've seen a UFO. I'm like, I mean, that's like ultimately the definition of UFO, right? I don't know what it was. It could have been anything. have been a firefly i I don't know um and then ghosts i mean this is this is my big thing like when i when when my family moved from rhode island to new jersey we moved into a house that had so many like so many unexplainable things happen in it like i i ultimately just i tell i tell stories um at, 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 at um at some of my school events, library events about growing up in a haunted house, because so many things happen like it's it's almost it's almost you know unbelievable. I don't like to like I don't like to come across as like one of those people who's like um oh you know like this this the supernatural like you know ghost hunter kind of like people with the apparatus and hunting things down like it's more of an anecdotal stuff for me but um, because ultimately like when you're talking about ghosts you're talking about the afterlife possibly Um, and I don't know where I stand on all that stuff but I know what I've seen I know what I've heard um, you know and some of it's been pretty scary and a lot of that has ended up in the books that I've that I've written, um, I, yeah. I mean, I think that the the last book I had come out in Scholastic last December called *Liars' Room* is um, most explicitly like I've I've taken experiences from my own sort of haunted childhood and put them in that book, which um, I haven't really had a chance to talk about very much. But um, yeah,
0: Well, we we've, we've spent a lot of time. Sounded really smart talking about fiction, talking about horror, talking about uh society and some of its ills. I feel like we've established enough credibility to build that up. Now we cash it in. <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> what are what are, what are some of the specific things that you're comfortable sharing that that happened to you in the haunted house?
1: Oh, um. Uh like just to be like vague, it was a, a lot of it was like um lights turning on and off by themselves um doors opening and closing um things sort of left differently around the house um from when we went to bed compared to when we woke up being alone in the house and hearing footsteps upstairs um one specific time we had a we had a like a swinging door between the kitchen and the, and the, um, the dining room. And I remember trying to push, trying to push it open one, one afternoon after school and somebody pushing back from the other side. Um, like literally seeing people standing at the end of my bed in the middle of the night, um, hearing growling noises and like really unexplainable, weird um, otherworldly sounds coming from dark parts of the house Um, and more and more and more. But um, yeah, those are, those are, those are some of the big ones. I mean, ultimately it was just like, what, what ends up happening when you're living in a place like that, it's just, it becomes just everyday normal. So like, light turns on behind you. You're like, Oh well, you go and turn it off. Um, I think, in a way, it's it's sort of like taught me how to be brave, <laughs> in the way that the middle middle grade horror I feel like can teach young people to be brave, um, because ultimately I don't think that there was anything dangerous happening in that house. Um, it was all like it was all shock and awe. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to come across sounding like.
0: No, like a, a esteemed audience, a Halloween episode, <laughs> and by God, we have delivered. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's
1: yes. These are my Halloween stories. Maybe they're true. Maybe they're not. So there you go. <laughs> well,
0: I, I find it an amusing thing um, that that so often people will have a, a supernatural experience and then take that to be you know the 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 key for everything in life. Um, which I think is usually it's, there's bad philosophy. Like people know I love to beat up on Ayn Rand because I think yeah, Ayn Rand was nuts. Uh, and, and and by the end, she was, you're listening to a crazy meth head when you're listening to Ayn Rand. That, that's what's happening there. But anyway, um, she would take a couple of principles like, oh, this is true and apply them to everything. Like, oh, this, this is true for business. Therefore, it must be true for relationships. It must be true for, for a personal hype. It must be true for, you no, know, it's true for the one thing. you And so when people look at a supernatural experience and say, "Aha!" And now I understand the complete afterlife and the meaning of existence. Right. No, no, right. <laughs> understand this 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 one thing. So obviously, I, I wouldn't expect you to have to have all of those answers based on this experience. But having had that experience, how does that change how you approach horror and how you approach life? Knowing, not thinking, but knowing that that's absolutely a possibility wherever you go. That you might bump into another one of these uh, supernatural events.
1: I don't honestly often don't really think about it. Um, I I found it, I found it scary, but also very exciting when I was, when I'd have moments like this, it often would turn into me running to a family member and being like, I just saw this crazy thing. Ah!" Or a family member being like, I have like coming home and finding them waiting outside of the house. My sister like couldn't stay in the house because, because of the noises she was hearing. It's like, um, uh ultimately um wait what was what was your question
0: (laughs) (laughs) how does how how does having that knowledge not the thought the absolute knowledge that there is something beyond what we can see and what we commonly accept as, as as our as our reality knowing that how does that impact your approach to writing horror and how does that also impact your approach to life
1: right 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 um I mean, it for for me, ultimately, it, like, it's given me a lot of inspiration. Um, about you know, when I when I when I want to create a character or a characters experience in a particular scene, um, where they're feeling fear, like, um, because of this unknown thing that is happening to them, depending on whatever story it is. Like, I feel like I've had that experience, and I know. what it feels like in the body and I know what it, you know, um, what it, what it can feel like in the mind and, and how, how it can sort of change you. Um, I think that's ultimately, that's ultimately where it's taken form in, in my writing. Um, and in life, I mean like I'm because it, because I've found so much inspiration in, in those experiences, like, i'm 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 intrigued by it like i'm like i like you know i i I think having a little ghost in your house is kind of fun (laughs) (laughs) um you know i don't i don't want any i don't want anything too wild like you know but like just just like a little hint that like something creepy you know Something creepy is going on. Like in this this house in particular, uh, when when I first moved in, my house my housemate Matthew who lives lives in a room downstairs, right near the front door. I don't know if you can hear him downstairs. He's talk, talking really loudly right now on the phone. Um, uh, he decorated the house for Halloween. Uh, I think the first Halloween that we were here. And like he like said, he haunted the house So the we have a front porch and he put up a whole bunch of stuff and like these two little ghouly things that were on strings and they both happened to turn and face the front door. And um, the day after he did that, um, I went to open the screen door um, uh, to, to go out to the porch and realize the screen door was locked. Um, and I didn't even, like we had, I'd been in the house, so, uh, it was such a new house to me at the time. I didn't realize the screen door could lock. And so I, I said to Matthew, I was like, did you lock this? He was like, no. It's like, I didn't even know that could lock. So it's like, did somebody come up on our porch and lock the door and then close it again? So like, I like tried to do that from that, from the outside, but the way the switch works is you, you can't, you can't lock yourself out of house with the screen with the screen door so whoever locked the door had to do it from inside (laughs) matthew didn't do it i didn't do it we're the only two adult humans in the house and um i like to think like if there was if there is like a little like little um spirit in our house right now like they got freaked out by the halloween decorations and we're like let's put in a little extra lock on the door. So those two ghoulies can't get in here. It's like, so like, I mean, I feel like every, every house that I've lived in has had some kind of weird little thing happen, but I'm the kind of person who pays attention (laughs) to these things too. So I don't want to say like, I'm I'm constantly moving from one haunted house to another haunted house, but like something like that happens. I'll try and, I'll try and figure it out. If I can't figure it out, automatically my brain goes to, well, it was a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> Must be a ghost.
0: Well, conversely, there's lots of people walking around that are having haunted experiences every day that have found right. different ways to rationalize them away. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah. Or they just, yeah. You just don't, yeah. I think I think that's that's generally the case. People are like, I've never seen a ghost. I'm like, I bet you
0: have <laughs> the pipes are screaming get out again Got it's not a problem well <laughs> yeah. yep. um, uh, Dan this has been an absolute privilege and a pleasure I know I could I could uh, talk your face off forever if you let me and I'm going to stop myself before I do <laughs> you're going to write right. uh, another 20 books come back and we'll, we'll do this again sometime
1: thank you I appreciate uh, you letting me ramble and ramble um, and I, I, it, was, it was really fun it was Really fun chatting with you, thank you.
0: My uh, last question for you for today, uh, and I'd like to end on this, is if you could go back to the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have made a difference and give yourself some advice that would have made easier your path, it might make easier the paths, of everybody who's watching or listening to us now, what would you go back and say to yourself? Yes.
1: You know, uh I, I would say I got some really good advice when I was when when I was starting out and writing in my spare time at the hospital with really no aspirations of publishing. I didn't think I didn't, I just was just doing this just to see what would happen. Um, and there's an author named Rachel Cohn who is a friend. Um she co-wrote uh some books with David Levithan, who we mentioned earlier. Um, I think maybe most notably was Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, and she's written books on her own as well. Uh, I think uh, Gingerbread was was one of them. She's she's she was wonderful uh, a wonderful young adult author, and she told me like for better or worse, like she was like this business it, it, this business will try like it's it's just hard. She was like you got to focus, and she was like put up your blinders. <laughs> like, like, like the horses in New York city. on like pulling the carriages. She's like, people are going to be coming at you from all sides telling you you're not good enough. Or, um, you know, this couldn't work because that's not the way the industry has been traditionally doing things or whatever. She was like, put up your blinders, focus on the work. Um, uh, that's, what's most important. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would I would say that advice I would share to other people as well because it really helped me um and the the blinders for me helped me get through working a day job at a hospital which was very difficult um very emotional. but when I was having one of those days um I I'd, I'd think back to what Rachel had said put up your blinders this is, this is part of it as well like you know like don't focus on this person's political, agenda right now don't focus on this crying patient <laughs> of course I was going to focus on the crying patient um but like uh, in terms of, of what I needed to do for my career it's basically it was just staying focused um, and I still I still try and tell myself that sometimes you know because it's hard it's hard to it's hard to keep it's hard to keep going um you know with the way that Publishing changes um, has changed. Will continue to change. Um, I'm sure that this would be really good advice for people dealing with their own books that are being challenged around this country. Um, I mean, yeah, you want to fight back too. Uh, maybe that's part of y- your focus. Um, but also, like, don't let it derail you. Don't let don't let these don't let these things derail you. Focus on what you want to make and make
0: it. I think that's the perfect note, Ken Dunn. Where can esteemed audience follow you online and social media and all that good stuff?
1: Um, sure, I'm on, I'm on um, Instagram at Dan Pablox with an X. You um, just share stuff from my life and book updates and stuff, silly stuff. I'm on Twitter at Dan Pablocki, um, and I think there's a Facebook page as well. Um, also have a, my website danpablocki.com where um, you can reach out to me, um, ask me about school visits or questions about my books, or you know just want to say hi. Um, there's a contact page there, and I try my best, try my best to stay on top of it, but. Um, um, Yeah, let's leave it at that. I try my best.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tales to Keep You Up at Night is available now, esteemed audience. Tis the season, if you're listening to us as this comes out, if it's after it comes out, well, good news. It's still a good time for a scary story. You know, (laughs) this morning, shove all those nice, warm thoughts away. Turn off the tree. It's a great time for a scary story. It's always a good time for a scary story. Uh, Tales to Keep You Up at night's going to give you a scary story. And once you finish with that, check out All Together Now, A Zombie Story by Robert Kent. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. For more information, head to middlegradeninch.com. And as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. <laughs>